Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Interest rates. We know they influence the strength of the economy, but how much influence do they really have? And is the central bank making the right decision on what those interest rates should be? And what if they didn't keep changing it? What if we just stuck at one rate forever? What would happen then? Hopefully, we'll make interest rates seem interesting. This week on the Deep Banking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen, I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, we know uh, for a while, at least this year, we'll be paying a lot more in interest. The The Fed is meeting this week in the United States, the central bank, and there's some speculation that they are going to rate hike uh, rates as much as half a percent in March. They're certainly going to raise their rates, and there's going to be many more rates this year, but maybe uh, there's, there's a talk about perhaps they're going to uh, shock the market with a half percent rate rise. Canada and the Bank of England will follow suit fairly shortly afterwards. It seems every central bank in the world is doing this, apart from in China, where actually they're going the other way. Uh, and the RBA in Australia is being reticent as well, but they'll probably change that when they see inflation start to pick up in Australia. So how important is it? What really determines interest rates? And uh, if, you, if you ask most people, they would say, yes, it's the central bank just trying to cool down or heat up the economy. But I wonder if really, uh, Steve, the central banks have got much choice on this. So uh, you told me to read Chapter 17 of uh, Keynes's General Theory, uh, where he talks about... Mm, sorry about yeah, that. Well, look, it's a heavy <laughs> read, isn't it? I have to, <laughs> have to say... It is a heavy read, yeah. Uh, it makes your book, Debunk- Debunking Economics, look feel like a Mills and Boone novel for, uh, you know, it's <laughs> elegant, simplistic. <laughs> I'll take it as a compliment until I, until I would advise yeah, otherwise. Yeah, Timmy and Mills and Boone. Uh, it could destroy your life. Um, but look, I mean, in se- Chapter 17, I'm, I'm a few things there, but one is... I mean, at the start, he's saying, well, look, you know, everything's got an interest rate. I mean, we tend to think, don't we, that, you know, government bonds and, and therefore government debt uh, has an interest rate. And that's what we're really concerned about. That's what central banks are concerned about. But everything has, a, has an interest rate, doesn't it? So I mean, if I was going to buy some potatoes in the future, the potatoes future uh, on the Irish potatoes future exchange, um, I'm going to pay an interest on that rate, aren't I, based on what I think potatoes are going to be in a year's time. I'm using today's money to buy something in the future. Yeah, it's what they call an own rate of return, and that was something Haynes made a fair bit of a song and dance about in that particular chapter, uh, saying that uh, every every product has its own rate of return. What we're talking about with an interest rate is trying to get a, a generic rate of return for an economy as a whole. Um, but he, he didn't see the rate of interest as, um, as having the same determining role um, in the economy that neoclassical economists ended up having. I mean, in that particular chapter, he is talking about how it, it, you can vary the rate of interest and you vary the rate of return on capital, whether the rate of return on capital is above the interest rate, which is going to give you a boom, or it's below the interest rate, which is going to slow the economy down. But in the middle of that chapter as well, he started talking in terms of something completely different, and that most people miss it. And that is, he's saying that investors will buy a capital good if they believe the 
uh, or they'll, they'll, have, they'll make capital goods, make, make investment goods, if they believe that the sale price, or what you call the demand price of the, of the good, will be greater than the, than the supply price or the cost price of building it. And by the time it gets to the 1937, the stuff about the rate of interest fine-tuning the economy has almost disappeared. And what he says instead is that uh, people's expectations of future profit are what determine how much they're willing to invest. And that depends on the gap between the supply price and the demand price Mm. for an investment good, which was not something he had in the general theory itself. And that then downplays the role of the rate of interest because um, the, the idea of the sort of reaching an equilibrium was, was partly the idea in Chapter 17. But here he's got a gap between the supply price and the demand price. And the bigger the gap, as it's perceived, the higher a rate of return you expect to get. And therefore, the less you're going to be worried about the rate of interest you pay if you expect a higher, a higher return coming out of the, out of the capital gain you expect. But that applies to anything, doesn't it? So if uh, if there's going to be a lot of potatoes this time next year, and I can you know I can read tea leaves and know I know that in advance, then um, then I know the price is going to be lower. Uh, and you know similarly, you know oil futures, computers, furnitures, w- whatever you want, it's the uh, it's your perception of the future demand and supply which is determining that price, isn't it? I mean, it makes no difference whether we're talking about. Money, or we're talking about commodities. People are speculating on, on all of them, and they all have that assumed rate of return based on what your perception is of what future demand and supply is going to be. Yeah, but the, but the rate of return is no longer what Keynes called in the in the general theory the marginal efficiency of capital, because it's it's whole idea about marginal implies a small change. Um, can you, you, you can make a small change in the rate of return on something. Uh, that, that's the whole idea of a marginal change. But when he starts talking about um, the supply price and demand price, he's talking about a gap. And the gap exists because your expectations of the future are uncertain. Uh, you, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. But you, if, you, if you speculate that a particular uh, commodity is going to do very well or that a particular industry will do very well or that the economy itself will do very well, then you will be willing to uh, you pay a very large rate of interest to be able to get your hands on money, mm. which enables you to invest in that line of business. And therefore, the capacity of the rate of interest to fine-tune everything, which is, comes out of the idea of the marginal efficiency of capital, that starts to go by the wayside. Yeah, particularly if you if you start to look at uh, herd uh, impact, um, you know, sort of animal spirits. If 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 somebody mm. speculates that something is going in one direction, and everyone goes, "Oh, he ha- he might have a point," and everyone jumps on it, then that, then that future is sort of determined, isn't it? And the the, the the well, I mean, everyone everyone might lose out as a result of it if he's made the, the the wrong call. But I mean, that's I mean, you know, the price of commodities is. Very little to do, I suspect, with the supply and demand. Well, it's a part of it, but it's largely the future price or the future perception is driven by the way the market's driving. And you get a great deal of volatility out of that and volatility that you can't control by fine-tuning the rate of interest. So uh, having having started off by talking in terms of the, in the general theory about uh, controlling the marginal efficiency of investment by varying the rate of interest, by the time he gets to 37, he's starting to talking in terms of uh, this, uh, the, uh, again, the, the sort of thing you're talking about, the herd, herd mentality, um, people, uh, your, your speculations about the future are based on very fragile information. Mm. Uh, and he said you, you, you really shouldn't be, uh, you're, you're determining your behaviour now 
based on your expectations of the future, when your knowledge about the future is incredibly uncertain. So what you tend to do is, is project forward what's happening at the moment, even though when you're looking at the past, you know that extrapolating forward from what's happening now has always been a bad guide to the future. So in the middle of all that, you don't get exactly get a picture of an economy that you can easily fine-tune by changing the rate of interest. But that's, of course, what the neoclassicals have got into in their world, where they try to eliminate expectations by saying we all have rational expectations, and those rational expectations are accurate predictions of the, of the model of the economy that neoclassical economists happen to have. So they've ended up neutralising the importance of expectations as Keynes saw it, uh, and therefore, that leaves the whole burden in their minds on adjusting the economy, on varying the rate of interest. But we, we I mean, we can have expectations on, on all of these different things, what the, what the return's going to be on potatoes or oil or computers or, hmm. or furniture uh, or, or, or T-shirts with Steve Keen's face on them. Um, but the, uh, the, I mean, if all of those, if we, if everyone is perceiving that all of them are going to increase in in value, then doesn't that mean that somewhere written into that, there's a perception of a base level of uh, uh, of interest, which you know the the central bank perhaps does need to pay attention to. That well, that that is an idea that economics keeps on coming back to in various ways because it was. The economists are seduced by the idea that there's some natural rate of everything. The, the, the idea that there's a natural centre of gravitation is something which is very seductive to the neoclassical vision of how the economy operates, and they've turned that into part of their model of how the central bank should control the economy, trying to, since they're the, it's the supposed experts on the economy, they can work out the rate of interest uh, that will fine-tune the rate of inflation to reach this a target set of numbers they have of a, a rate of inflation of about 2%, mm. a rate of growth of about 3%, and a rate of interest of about 4%. So, and all of this came from Hicks's work, didn't it, from his ISLM model. So, so tell us uh, all about that, how that works. Okay. Well, the concept starts off, first of all, the idea that there's a fixed money supply that the government can vary. That's uh, when you look at where Hicks derived it, he has this idea of a, a vertical money supply curve. And if you Uh, that's the supply of money the government can move it one way or the other so it sees the money supply as being under government control which of course is not the modern attitude that the market itself sets the amount of money but this is the model vertical money supply move it horizontally and if you move it out you increase the money supply then you are reducing the rate of interest because the rate of interest is supposed to be set by a downward sloping uh, demand curve for money where that demand curve uh, you, the, the lower the rate of interest, the more money you will demand to use for investment purposes. So the the scene has been a a, um, a, a a mark the demand curve which slopes down, vertical supply curve. Move the supply curve out, you drop the rate of interest. Move the supply curve back in, you increase the rate of interest. And that's seen as being the money supply side of it. And then on the investment side, the rate of interest determines how many projects are going to be profitable in the future. So you have a a set of investment projects uh, and you will undertake those projects if the net present value of the project is going to be positive. And that depends upon the rate of interest. So again, the whole thing is the interest rate can fine-tune the economy and you can reach an equilibrium point where you have a a rate of interest that gives you the the, uh, investment savings uh, line intersecting with the liquidity money line and that will give you a rate of of economic, uh, level of economic activity 
output and an equilibrium rate of interest. But it's, and it's, that, it's a, it's a yeah. model to tell the central bank what to do, though, isn't it? Because if you were to alter the amount of money in circulation, then I mean, the interest rate wouldn't by nature change. It's telling the central bank that it needs to change, isn't it? Well, they pretty much well, what, with with this with this model, what it told the central banks to do is change the amount of money. Yeah. Because they were told their their control is they actually can control the amount of money in the economy, and that's what they tried to do under Milton Friedman, and it failed abjectly because, uh, as as was argued by the endogenous money crowd, starting with a, a research director of the um, Fed Reserve in New York of all people, not not a radical economist at all, but a, the research director of the Fed in New York Fed, who said in the real world. Uh, banks determine how much money is supplied, not the government. Yeah, so banks. the yeah. idea that you can yeah. vary, it's not going to fail. And by trying to re- reduce the rate of growth of the money supply, all you'll do is cause interest rates to rise, which is what actually happened. But then that's been turned around, hasn't it? Because now banks will say, well, of course, commercial banks uh, issue loans, so they determine how much money there is in circulation. And therefore, we can control the amount of money by altering the interest rate because we'll make uh, the ability for you to take out a home loan, which is a big chunk of it, uh, either more attractive or less attractive. It's not well, the same. It's not Hicks's you know, model, now, is it? Now they, now they do try to control it using the rate of interest. Yeah. And they're largely regarding the supply of money as indeterminate. In the, in the, in the models of the neoclassicals, uh, they've effectively gone from having a vertical control system, which is the amount of money, to a horizontal, which is the rate of interest. But when you look at um, the, the, the formula they... They, the, the, the way they try to put this in a formulaic way was done by a guy called Taylor. And he basically said, if you look at what central banks have done in the past, they've had a target rate of inflation of 2%. And they've varied the rate of interest to try to reach this 2% rate of inflation while taking into account uh, the actual rate of inflation and a target rate of growth of the economy as well. And I'll, re- I'll read the equation out because it's, it, it, it's not, I don't want anybody to understand it. What I want to show is the extent to which it's got arbitrary numbers inside it. So it says mm-hmm. R, which is the federal funds rate, is the inflation rate, which is P, plus half of Y, which is the, the deviation of the rate of growth of the economy from a target rate, plus half of P minus 2, where P is the inflation rate again, and there's the number 2, plus 2. So in this formula, which you know, normally when you see a, an economist model, its, its formulas are all algebraic terms. This has got 0.5y plus 0.5p minus 2 plus 2. Mm. So four numbers turning up there. And this very arbitrary number is, set of numbers has become part of how central banks believe they could control the rate of inflation by varying the rate of interest. Yeah. It's not been hugely successful, of course, has it? No, <laughs> it's been total back, failure. <laughs> we look back at, but I mean, if if we if the expectation of what the future rate is going to be, if we if we're speculating, you know, if we were to look at that model and say, well, okay, um, what is what is going to be the future of, of interest rates? It's going to be determined by the amount of money in circulation. Well, we can tell. I mean, what is it? Two trillion that's been added uh, to the uh, the central bank's uh, balance sheet in the in the United States. We know they're going to wind that down. So we know, uh, for right or wrong reasons, so we know in the future the amount of money in circulation, um, because every time the, the, the Fed gets rid of money and puts it back on the open market, that's shrinking the money supply, we know that's going to happen. So we know in a year's time, 10 years' time perhaps even, the amount of money that's in circulation in the United States is going to be a lot less than it is now. So surely that's going to have a... A, a, a direct bearing on what the interest following this model what the, the, the interest rates are going to be 
You haven't be been hitting the gin again, have you? But I mean, this is but this is what everyone's looking at now. <laughs> but this is what everyone is looking at right now, isn't it? Interest rates have to go up because we're going to be shrinking the money supply because we're going to be we're going to be uh, reducing the balance sheet, which the Fed, well, by the, the way, in the, the last minutes have said they will yeah. be doing. They're not just putting interest rates up this year; they are actively going to try and run down their balance sheet. Yeah, well, they've been trying to do that for the last uh, ten years, yeah. and they haven't got very far. Well, I mean, I mean I think, when, again, when they've tried this... it, the economy's tanked. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. because what you what it's not the economy tanks when they when they take money out of the market, uh, the, 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 the factor that largely determines what, what's going to be their behaviour in the future is if, they, if they, uh, they're selling bonds uh, back to the uh, non-bank financial institutions that can actually buy shares on the stock market, then they're giving them to actually buy the bonds when and the, the companies will do this if they can see a trading profit, then they're going to have to liquidate some other assets and they liquidate shares and share prices fall and the bank panics, oh my God, can't have fallen share prices and you're back into QE again. So I, I can't actually see them ever getting out of, uh, out of the huge um, uh, balance sheet uh, overload they've got of bonds to begin with because ultimately their behaviour is driven now not by what they do to the real economy, but what they do to the stock market. Mm. Yeah, well, that's going to, I mean, that, that will definitely go down, won't it? Which brings you back to, you know, speculation. If we're looking at the future demand for stuff, um, if, you, if you think it's going to go down, you're going to pay less for it. So the interest rate on those is... So the, the, and there's the thing, isn't it? It's money we... Um, it, it's all to do with supply and demand. So so the value of money is... is well, maybe it's not. Is, is the value of money related to the amount of money that's in circulation? I mean, is that no? And and and, and this this is this is the break that Keynes was whereas, talking whereas we about. Look, whereas we look at in commodities, that's yeah. what the difference, isn't it? Because the, the the price of oil is largely determined by the supply and demand for oil, and the same for almost every other commodity. But money's different. Yeah. Whereas yeah, whereas money, uh, you know, money is, is is as Keynes said, our desire to hang on to our money is a reflection of our own confidence and our own expectations of the future. Mm. And when our confidence is low. Uh, we'll we'll have a, a very high demand for money, yeah. and when the confidence is high, you have a low demand for money. So it's not so much reflecting the conditions of production of the economy, but the conditions of confidence that people have, yeah. and that can be extremely fragile when you have a turning point in the economy. And what we're going through right now, and in many ways, is people wondering: Are we going through a turning point? Are we getting runaway inflation? Uh, is that is because we've had a supply shock? Uh, with the collapse of the supply chain with COVID, are we going to get runaway inflation like we did back in the 1970s? And that's what's, that's what suddenly made this whole topic of interest rates and the rate of inflation um, uh, popular again, whereas for quite some time, the general trend of both interest rates and inflation was down. So it's all to, it's all to do with liquidity, isn't it, really? So, you know... Yeah, it, that's, that's it. Liquidity is a vital issue that's being left out of current discussions. Yeah, yeah and yet banks do th- talk liquidity when it comes to bank liquidity. You know, central banks are very concerned to make sure there's enough money in the in the uh, in the finance system so that banks can uh, settle their arrangements with each other they spend a lot of time devoted to you know uh, liquidity in the banking system but they don't think about the way uh, uh, human beings real people behave and their, their desire to have real money when times are a bit uncertain and also with liquidity goes debt mm. and this is the other issue which has been left out of the the current thinking because all these discussions about putting up interest rates is being done without considering what's the current level of private debt 
And now with the level of private debt we have right now, I'm, I'm quite confident that if you put the interest rate up even a couple of percent, you are going to cause massive bankruptcies because people are not going to have the, the cash flow to service their debt anymore. More, more importantly, they're going to stop borrowing money. And when they stop borrowing money, you stop having credit demand being added to the economy and the economy will slow down far more rapidly than the people who are talking about fine-tuning it using interest rates actually realise. So this makes me a, a, a bit of a sceptic about the potential for the type of uh, demand push inflation that occurred back in the 1970s or demand pull inflation that occurred back in the 1970s. I can certainly see us having the supply side shock coming through. But that turning into a, a wage price spiral, I'm, I just I, I can't see it happening. I'm more likely to see uh, a collapse in demand occurring when uh, increase in supply price means that some goods that, people, that, uh, that workers and middle class people used to buy are no longer affordable and you get more of an income effect out of it than you get out of uh, then you get an inflation effect out of it. Well, it's a question, isn't it, whether we will see wages going up. I mean, people are certainly, I mean, they are going up. I mean, we know that. People are asking for more, but they're asking for more because they're seeing 5%, uh, what is it, 5.5% in the UK, expected it's going to be 7%, and 7% inflation now in the United States, and that mm. could go higher. So obviously everyone's saying, well, we need more money. I mean, everyone's asking for more money because they want to maintain their standard of living. So... Whatever the cause of it, uh, the upshot is it, it's spiralled into wages. Whether that forms a continued spiral that sees those going even higher is is the question, and and I, and I guess that's less likely. That's my feeling. I, just, I think that uh, the, the, if you go back to the 1970s when you had that wage price spiral, you still had fairly strong unions, mm. even in America. And uh, when, when there was an increase in the rate of inflation, uh, driven by the supply shock from OPEC putting up its prices in both 73 and 79. You had the capacity for workers to demand wage rises to compensate for that. And then you got a, a contest over the distribution of income, meaning that prices went up as well and then wages and so on. And you had that runaway period for inflation for a while. And the way that it was brought under, under control was Vokla whacking up interest rates dramatically by trying you know, to, to control the rate of growth of supply of money, all it meant was the interest rate became extremely high, like 17%. And that broke the back of the boom in the economy. And you went into a classic uh, you know, demand-driven slump. And in that slump, wage rises, wage demands collapse as well. And you broke the back of inflation. And then at the same time, of course, you had China coming online and, and drastically reducing the cost of production. Now, um, those those effects aren't there this time round, and what you're more likely to have is this fragility of the supply system, meaning that your supply cost is going to keep on increasing, but I don't think you're going to get the the wage rises to maintain a, a price spiral coming out of that. And if you're pushing up interest rates, then anybody who's speculating on anything was, is going to see a lower return, aren't they? So all of those. Um uh, investment instruments, you know, stocks and shares, but also commodities, anything that you were, you're looking at getting some sort of return from buying forward, um, mm. then that gets destroyed by higher interest rates, of course, which means that people are less likely to be investing in those commodities, which could bring the, ultimately, you know, have the effect of bringing the price down, couldn't it? It could. Um um, the easiest way of looking at that is what's it doing with stocks and shares? Everyone's going, well, um, you know, there's there's uh, less of a future here if, if interest rates are going to be higher. Let's go and uh, 
move to, uh, or, or if we're going to move to stocks and shares, let's move to ones which are index linked. Um, you know, it's it changes the whole demand pattern. Yeah, and I, that, that's what I think. I'm more expecting to see a change in the in the pattern of demand than I am sustained inflation, uh, because uh, if, if, particularly if you have a collapse in supply chain and it's no longer possible to produce commodities extremely cheaply as it was uh, in the pre-COVID days, uh, then the result might be increase in price of goods which workers have got used to being able to buy and suddenly they won't have the income to be able to afford them anymore or to replace them as often. So if things like, for example, replacing a computer every couple of years is going to disappear, replacing a car every five years uh, is going to disappear. And the, what you get out of it is a decline in consumption, not an increase in the price level. Yeah, which is obviously not good for the economy. Well, not much is going to be good for the economy in the future, I think. Uh, this is partly... I mean, we, we, we've pushed the envelope far too far with the incredibly fragile supply chains that were built to take advantage of low wages in, in China and the rest of the developing world uh, from American transnationals back in the 90s and the 2000s. And now we see if you break those supply chains, then suddenly costs go astronomical uh, and nobody's really making a profit out of it. You, um, you, 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 you obviously have... Uh, you know, less goods being supplied uh, to uh, the shipping ports on the on the west coast of America. Longer uh, supply chain supply lags in getting stuff into the shops. Uh, it's it's a breakdown. It's not something where people are, are making a profit. Uh, it, well, if, you, it, and if you're looking for how that would be fixed, I mean, if it could be fixed overnight, let's let's pretend we're you know we're we're, we're conventional economists, and uh, every, you know the whole world can change overnight while you're asleep. Uh, you wake up the next morning, and you've got all these new industries based locally because it's been too expensive or unreliable to use international supply chains. The price of everything is more expensive. Obviously, you might have more uh, sustainable local employment, but the cost of everything's gone up as well. So that would be inflationary, but only for a short period while you're establishing all those those new industries. It's not like it's a continual trend. It's it's a bit like a, and I, I hate to use the term reset because it's been seen as having negative connotations, but it's, it's a bit like an economic reset, isn't it? You know that the we've got rid of those supply chains. We're moving to a more locally based sustainable future which is going to be more expensive but it's only more expensive than it was i mean a year later it's not going to be any more expensive well yeah but if you this is partly returning to the sort of world that uh, henry ford tried to create uh, where he paid his workers enough that they could afford to buy the cars he was producing uh, and and so yeah. you you try to have a higher aggregate demand uh, but it might also mean higher price levels um because, you know, if, if the moment you're paying uh, workers in the third world extremely low wages to produce uh, integrated circuits, if you then try to produce that in America, you, uh, you're you going to be paying higher wages for it. So you, your costs might rise at the same time. So um, and, and of course, it, it's a mythical yeah. world where it is possible to do that quickly. These things take years uh, in the transition. And in that process, yeah. uh, you know, that's why I, I tend to be, I tend to fall on the transient inflation camp overall. But my worry is that we're going to continue seeing these supply breakdowns. And when you have supply breakdowns, that actually causes prices to rise simply because for most goods, supply price falls as you increase the output level. The opposite happens if you're forced to reduce the output level. You get higher per unit costs mm. and, uh, and that will... Uh, give you a sort of a sustained supply price 
increase in prices, but I can't see it turning through to a demand price spiral at the same time. No, but it, it, and if we resume those uh, those international trade patterns, then it, sh- it, it would be transient, wouldn't it? But my point was, which is perhaps a discussion for another day, what if we've learned from that and we try and change the model? But let's, that'll be a different podcast, I think. Let's, let's just finish off this okay. one, talking about interest rates. What happens if central banks did nothing? Do we need interest rates? I mean, uh, you know, could money, you know, determine, we need it surely to determine the rate of borrowing and how much borrowing goes on, which, you know, supposedly leads to determining the money supply. So you can see an argument for it there, because the interest rates do determine the quantity of money if you follow that through but do we need do we need to keep changing it or could we say well in the interest of stability there is an interest rate let's take that natural two mm. percent oh. and just say that that's it from now per into perpetuity what would be the impact of it, that? It, there's a strong argument from the post-keynesian particularly a modern monetary theory group that the natural rate of interest should be zero which i think is too low frankly i think that there is a a reason for a cost of cost of capital and you do need to have a uh, you know, certainly in terms of, of, of banks lending money then they have to have a, a base cost of of you know the, the infrastructure necessary to be able to be money producers and that's going to be of the order of two or two or three percent um, but in terms of using it as a fine-tuning mechanism I think the the, the, the record of doing is using it as a fine-tuning mechanism is extremely uh, bad and the possibility of using it in the future again I think ignores the fact that it's uncertainty about the future uh, that determines people's willingness to invest far more so than the rate of interest they pay on borrowed money yeah with with zero I mean there's no incentive to save well we'll say this 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 is another topic for another day of course but what is savings I mean um, the idea that you can save money into existence is one we've sent up in a little cartoon book you might remember some time back uh, so it, it, the savings is a residual amount of pinning up in people's uh, bank accounts, and that is far more determined by the fiscal actions of the of the government than it is by people's own own decisions. So um, you don't again the idea of a supply of savings, which can be brought out by a high rate of interest, again is putting yourself back in a, a classical world rather than the actual world we live in. Uh, where m- m- money is a fiat thing, it's not something which you can encourage people to dig out of the ground and and sell more of uh, if the price. Well, let's rises. take it the other way. Then it is a discussion for another podcast. But if if it's zero, then I'm going to buy a uh, a massive house because my because uh, my mortgage is going to be uh, I'm effectively getting free money. And that is a parlor. It's one of the factors you can argue behind the increase in prices recently in, in real estate is that people saying the interest rate's so low I can afford a higher, a higher yeah. price for the property and it feeds into the speculation and asset prices. It's and that's, obvious that's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of it. I mean, it's also the sheer scale of money turning up because of the, the deficits the government's running because of COVID. And then that means people have got more of a deposit uh, for their purchase price and with the higher purchase for higher deposit they've got a higher uh, borrowing capacity from the private bank so it all feeds in that way as well all right so uh, final point then on interest rates it seems to me and i might be wrong on this but uh, obviously when the, uh, the the bank determines the you know the size of the money supply directly or indirectly through interest rates indirectly because it's it's through how much is being issued through uh, commercial banks normally 
Um, but uh, mm. but when you but, but that's just one element of uh, you know of money. Obviously, you've got the velocity of money as well. It seems to me the more money there is in circulation, the lower it circulates. Yeah. So uh, the, the net effect on economic output is is pretty marginal. And that's something we, we we don't see enough discussion of. We have seen a huge decline in the velocity of circulation of money, and I think a large part of that is because people are inherently thinking they should spend more slowly to be able to hang on to more of the money in existence to pay down their own debt. So the high level of debt causes a lower rate of turnover of money, and that then feeds into the economy possibly far more powerfully than just the rate of interest. Yeah, well, people don't know how much money is in circulation, of course, so they wouldn't be saying, I'm going to, I'm going to pass it on slow because there's so much more of it. It must be, there must be a, an interim step in that, which is probably that there's more money because the times are bad, so there's mm. had to be more ploughed in, and if times are bad, people are more reticent to spend as quickly. Which indeed they are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, which is where we are, mm. exactly. All right, very good. Well, there's a couple of things we spoke about there which we need to follow up on. But next week, uh, I want to talk to you about your housing policy. Ooh, uh, yes, that's going to go down well. I'm looking forward to all the landlords the lining up to, uh, to, to throw um, uh, sharp objects at me. Right, OK. Well, take cover. Wear uh, some bulletproof <laughs> clothing for that one. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Steve. Hey, mate, bye. And that's it for this week. Steve Keen in a horizontal position. He's uh, just had his knee joint done from too much running early on in his life. Don't run! is the easy at swim when have you ever heard of anyone having a knee problem from too much swimming uh i rest my case that's it for this week i'm phil dobby back again next week thanks for listening mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market if you've enjoyed listening to debunking economics uh, even if you haven't you might also enjoy the y curve each week roger hearing and i talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week it's lively it's fun it's informative what more could you want so search the y curve in your favorite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen